It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. It's where we bring together award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, we publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And Good with morning. us today, we have Chrissy Sampson, who's the deputy managing editor over at the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Chrissy. Hello. Good morning. We have Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. And Joe Workmeister, the editor uh, at the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Joe. Hey, good morning. Good to have you all here. Uh, Another busy week. Uh, Lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, Maybe we should start with marijuana. Uh, The conversations are continuing all over uh, the East End uh, at various villages and towns. Uh, who are looking at the new state decriminalization of cannabis products, and they have to come up with some local decisions about whether or not they're going to allow uh, the sale uh, to a, for adult use uh, cannabis locally. And uh, I think for the most part, uh, a lot of the uh, villages and towns are opting out, right? Um, Denise, River had made a decision on this early, but uh, there was a new development this week up your way, right? Yeah, well, Riverhead's, Riverhead's not opting out, and um, now they are trying to figure out uh, whether, well, not I would say not whether, but like how it should, how the sale, uh, retail sale, including, you know, uh, on-site consumption lounges, how those things should be restricted and regulated in the town, because the state law, while it makes this legal, gives the municipalities the ability to um, regulate the time, place, and manner of, of how these things are used within the municipalities. And um, so they can say where they could, they could do that, uh, you know, according to zoning use district or some other uh, mechanism. And they can say, you know, they can set times and days of operation. They can um, set rules for appropriate ventilation and that kind of thing. Um, so they formed a committee, um, the supervisor, and uh, appointed um, Councilman Ken Rothwell. She and, and Councilman Rothwell were the two uh, town board members in Riverhead who voted to opt out on the opt out law. Um, so she made him the chairman of, or the liaison or something, she put him in charge of this committee. And uh, they had their first meeting Tuesday night um, and um, they discussed, um, they basically discussed um, locating the various places in the town where they don't want to see any of these marijuana sale shops and lounges uh, located near, Um, you know, the state law says there has to be certain setbacks, if you will, like distances from schools, houses of worship, um, playgrounds, et cetera. Um, So the towns can go a little further than that. And they are talking, they are indeed talking about um, additional restrictions. And so they basically agreed that they're going to have uh, the town, I guess, uh, GIS guy, um, you know, locate these places on a map of the town um, and then, um, you know, circle them with the, you know, distances of, I think, a thousand feet and 500 feet is where they where they land. That would be the areas where they couldn't be, basically. Well, that's the idea. I mean, that's what they're yeah. going to discuss. So I would say, yeah, that's probably, the, you know, the case. Um, does it? Does it make sense? The vote 
not to opt out in Riverhead was three to two, right? It was a very uh, close vote. Does it yeah. make sense to put one of those two, the, the, the two votes to opt out in charge of a committee uh, that's making the rules? Is, is, is that inappropriate to do, do you think? Well, I mean, the supervisor apparently appointed the committee and she thought it made she was the other opt out vote. So she thought it made sense. Um, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I mean, if you're in favor of those things and I guess you're you're skeptical about this. Um, but, um, you know, he says he's going to keep an open mind. And, um, you know, I, I wish, for example, that, you know, we've got a large marijuana uh, grower and a large marijuana marijuana, everything, the medical marijuana folks who wanted to sell retail um, in the town, you know, Columbia Care. They're, they've been in Riverhead with a medical marijuana dispensary for a long time. And this year they purchased a greenhouse operation on Sound Avenue in the town of Riverhead. And, um, you know, they are one of the biggest players in the industry in um, in the country, I think. Right, Joe? Um, and and they, um, they were not invited to be on, on this committee. Um, which if I, you know, that to me didn't make sense. Like why not include them? Um, we asked about that and uh, Councilman Rockwell said he thought that would be a conflict of interest. Um, but it just seems to me to be, you know, like uh, these are people with expertise in the field. So, you know, that maybe they're doing business in other states where this has been going on already. Like why not tap into their knowledge? I think, I don't know. But um, Joe, Joe, what's your take on all this? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it is interesting just how kind of fast Riverhead got out in front of this when all these other, uh, local towns and uh, villages out here, have seemed to be taking a longer, uh, approach on it. And, you know, Riverhead definitely did uh, get out in front on it and out in front on it. And, um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to get, um, you know, the, uh, Columbia care to you know, kind of weigh in on, you know, it's, it's going to be a big, big company coming in and, um, uh, going to have a big impact, you know, you would think. And once they're kind of uh, you know, fully up and running, and um, you know, I think there's still uh, some un- unanswered questions there of what the, what that operation is really going to look like. And um, you know, w- once it's um, uh, up and running, um, you know, we did see um, a little farther east in uh, Greenport Village, they just recently uh, voted to opt out, and that was a split vote. And um, you know, part of the discussion there was, again, not so much that they were, you know, were anti-marijuana, but just mm-hmm. um, some uncertainty with what the state regulations look like and and kind of, I guess, a sense of feeling that the state is not, you know, relaying down the kind of necessary, um, you know, information that, you know, these local governments feel like, you know, they need kind of kind of being left out there. And, you know, we've seen a change in gov- state government leadership and, you know, you know, how much of that was a factor and things kind of being, um, um, you know, a little up in the air now. Um, so, you know, these public hearings have drawn a lot of uh, different opinions. Um, and uh, and I'm also just kind of curious, you know, when we talk about these, uh, you know, dispensaries, uh, you know, are, are there really going to be tons of these places popping up where people just are going to hang out and smoke weed together? Like, I think I think I think, I think the, the state's going to limit the number of licenses um, and, and you're going to see some control that way. Denise, I'm, I'm curious with, with with the mapping that they're talking about. I think there was also discussion in other areas anyway about, um, you know, bringing in the zoning code and allowing these only in certain zones. 
Um, but are they going to be like really specific and, you know, and, and go, well, you could, we could have one on this block or we could have one on this block, or is it just going to be kind of anywhere in this certain zone um, just away from the churches and, and the school? Yeah, right? I, I mean, honestly, I, I would, if I were doing this, I would start out by looking at the zoning use districts in the town that exist right. and say, you know, where does it seem to make sense? And then look at this granular level of, you know, the various, like where are the churches and daycare centers and that kind of thing within those zoning use districts. Where do these zoning use districts exist in the town? Um, they're kind of doing it from the ground up. And um, I can't, I mean, it's got to get, find its way into zoning one way or another. I mean, that's right. how it's going to be implemented. So, you know, there, um, uh, the supervisor has mentioned possibly being in favor of um, do, uh, allowing these things only in industrial zones. Um, but that that was just kind of a mention, you know, I, well, um, I, I, heard I, that. I don't know. I heard Brooke that. Haven I, did that. Brookhaven did that actually. Just an industrial. I, you know, I mean, I yeah. heard from, from cannabis supporters and we had had a, a sessions on it and, you know, and some of the supporters were saying that that seemed almost not discriminatory. I don't know what, what the right word is, but if you say, you know, only in the industrial zones, you're kind of pushing it off and making it like a second class type thing when when this is something that's that's legal now in, in the state. And do you want to just push it to um, to, to certain to certain areas? Is that you know too much of a restriction? I think that was an interesting point. You know, I mean, it seems to me worse than second class. It's like, right. you know, I, OK, you can go and buy pot in this like, you know, it's these things generally C operate CD, only nine CD, to five in, in you know, the yeah, CD, like CD warehouse area. Go, to, go up to the nothing, CD warehouse area and buy your pot. And then nothing, nothing you know. else is open at right. eight o'clock at night, but you can go and buy pot. <laughs> I mean, that's like, isn't that like an invitation to get mugged or something? I don't know. Yeah. I, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me, but um, Brookhaven did it and we'll see what happens with, with that. And they did that back in August. They, they yeah, it kind of limits the viability of like people even, you know, trying to decide that well, they're even going to start something because they're like, oh, if I have yeah. to, if this is where I have to do it, I don't even know if it's worth my time to do it. And, yeah, and I got that friendly dealer who comes to you. <laughs> it'll discourage local um, businesses probably. I think yeah. you might see big money businesses who are willing to spring up wherever they can get um, get get a foothold. But can we take a minute or two here and explain for the listeners, but you know, frankly, explain it for me too, this process. The the opt-out decision is really the first decision. And it it means that the towns and villages are basically preserving their right to not allow the sale and distribution within their borders, correct? But they can decide opt later. Yeah. yeah, they can they can change their minds later, but if they don't opt out now, they, they lose that ability. Right. Later. They, they got to opt out ever. by December 31st. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and then uh, I'm sorry, Chrissy. I was just gonna say that, and then the next question is how you allow all this. And that's a whole new set of questions right. uh, mm -hmm. that they're all having. I'm sorry, Chrissy, go ahead. I was going to say, have we heard any indications that there will be community members uh, petitioning for that permissive referendum aspect, you know, where they, um, you know, they can petition their local government to opt, you know, to reverse that decision, right? Have we heard well, anything they, like that? No, they can force, yeah, they can force yeah. a, um, uh, they could force a vote is what right. that is. And, and they've got 45 days from the day, from the effective date of the opt-out law. They've got 45 days from that date 
to file the petition um, and, and force a vote. So East Hampton Town and, and Greenport Village, are, those are still very much in play there. If people want to reverse those, you know, opt out, opt out laws. Chris, yeah, I, haven't heard that. I haven't heard anything about uh, a petition yeah. effort, any kind of significant one uh, on the South Fork, Chrissy. Have you heard anything like that? No, I just thought maybe, you know, are people paying attention? Do people know that this thing, this process exists? Yeah, that surprises me. We mentioned in an editorial that um, East Hampton Town and East Hampton Village recently had public hearings before. I believe they have both uh, decided to opt out, correct? correct. Both East Hampton yeah. Village and East Hampton Town. But they held hearings uh, that nobody spoke at, neither right. pro nor con. And I'm fascinated that this major societal change is coming and it seems like local residents are either unaware or they're just staying in the background and letting it happen. And uh, they're, they're all they're all sitting on their couches, you know, stoned watching Netflix. They don't have time. To- <laughs> I, I think I think that people mistake mouthing off on social media with participatory government. That's true. I, I think really you're do. Probably or right. most anything else. I, I, I you see that with everything. I mean, it's astonishing especially with something like this. I mean, you know, Riverhead had about a dozen people maybe, um, and it was pretty evenly split, come and speak at the public hearing. Um, and What um, I find interesting had- is the, the pro-cannabis people are very articulate and passionate. And, and I, I think just, uh, they make a good case, whether or not you ultimately agree with it, I think they make a good case. I'm just surprised they're not out doing that more because, uh, this is the time when that when it really matters. They, they like may there be, would be an organized, you know, effort. You, th- yeah. you think they, they may be surprised, but I, I, honestly, I'm I'm a little surprised at the number of municipalities that have opted out. Opted out. I didn't think it would be that high, but it's looking on the South Fork anyway. Like um, Southampton Town aside, which I don't think will opt out. It, it feels like all the other villages in East Hampton Town have have opted out. That surprised me a little bit. I didn't think it was going to go that way. Well, and Joe, that's that, true. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say by doing that, they also won't receive a share of the tax revenue, right? Like right. there's right. a there's that element too. Well, and and, and, look, I, and I understand being cautious, and I think a lot of the you know the the elected officials want to see how this thing plays out. But I think they were also cautioned, and, and this came up at, at the sessions event we had too by, by the pro people, that because there will be a limited number of licenses issued in the state, um, if a municipality opts out, and then even if they opt back in in a year, um, there may be no licenses left for um, local small business owners who want to get in on you know, want to get in on the ca- cannabis sales or or the uh, the lounges or, or that type of thing. So it may be okay. it may be. I just have to. Here. I gotta. I gotta jump in here with one point on that on that aspect of it. It's like how many elected officials want to be on the record in our fairly conservative Suffolk County as like saying, "Yeah, I'm in favor of selling pot in my town." Yeah. Like. Nobody wants to do that. I mean, even in spite of the three percent tax revenue that Jay Schneiderman thinks is going to bring in a couple of million dollars to his town coffers. But, I mean, but there's a, who there's wants a to do that? There's a pragmatic aspect to this too, though. If you're an elected official, 
I, I've said this before. I mean, you can go down to the beach and stand with your hands up and say, I'm going to stop the tide. I mean, it's coming. It's not, you're not going to stop it from happening. Uh, and, and, you know, I've had conversations with law enforcement folks who talk about the real challenges that are going to be coming in dealing with uh, intoxicated drivers, things like that, that are going to require resources. These towns and villages are going to have to spend money to deal with the problems that are coming with the legalization of cannabis. If they don't have any revenue, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, you, you, you really, you, you need to plan for the new world that's coming. And, and uh, I, I, I'm just intrigued that some of the villages and towns I understand the opting out because I think they want to maintain their options, but I'll be curious to see ultimately. I mean, we talk, Bill, you mentioned Southampton town. Uh, I think Southampton town probably won't opt out. And right. uh, that's going to be, uh, I think it's the appropriate decision in a lot of ways, because again, the Shinnecock nation uh, will be selling marijuana. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense for Southampton town not to, to be allowing um, some some competing businesses, but uh, this is going to be a, a, a real wave that's coming soon. I just, I just think nobody wants to be tagged as the elected official who said yes to pot. Like, yeah, I, sure. you know, certainly not in Republican Riverhead or Southold. I don't think. I don't know about places on the South Fork, but I, I think that um, also I think it's overblown in terms of how much more you know they're going to have to cope with drivers who are high on pot behind the wheel. People are smoking pot now. It's yeah. all over. I mean, it just really is. And that's and it's something, you know, law enforcement officers will tell you, yeah, it happens a lot. And they don't have the ability to really, you know, do what they need to do to prosecute that, to write somebody up for that, because they don't have those specially trained. You know, it's harder to detect. There's no breathalyzer test for it, et cetera. So, you know, that's something they've been dealing with anyway. I don't know how. I don't know how many. Yeah, I don't feel like it's there's going to be a cause and effect like it's legal now. And so many more people are going to start, you know, doing it. I don't I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't I don't know that that's necessarily true. But I think um, drinking while driving is still going to remain the predominant uh, issue, you know, know, with alcohol. So, you know, that's not going away. It's still going to be the, the big issue for for police and how much more does marijuana really add to it? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I had a conversation off the record this week with, with a law enforcement official who said that the towns and villages are approaching uh, the use of marijuana and restricting it like it's smoking, that they're tying it to smoking, that if you can smoke in a place, you're allowed to smoke marijuana. And this person said, that's wrong. It should really be treated like alcohol. If you are not allowed to drink in a place, you shouldn't be allowed to smoke marijuana. That it's that that tying it to smoking makes less sense than tying it to something like alcohol, where the the, the concern is with the effect that you're going to have. I thought that was kind of an interesting take that I have. It's heard. interesting because I, I think you know tying it to smoking it, it makes it like an environmental issue. It's the smoke. It's the you know the smoke itself that's bothering people. You know surrounding you, smelling it, and you know, and, and running into it and, and all that. But I think you're right. I think the state law did that, though. I think the state law said yeah. that. Like, I don't I think the towns have a choice about that. But yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, you can't drink a beer in, in a public place. You can't drink a beer on a sidewalk. I mean, you can, but you get written up for it. Um, that's so right. Why should that's you, you got to go to New Orleans? Pot, you know, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never been there. But that's you can be sitting on the sidewalk 
smoking a joint and the guy beside you sitting in, and drinking a beer and only one of you is going to get arrested and it's not the guy with the joint. That's kind of an intriguing situation. Yeah. So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. <laughs> uh, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm with the Express News Group. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton from the Express News Group. And with us today are Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Um, so you guys uh, up in Riverhead, you had a local school district that had a cyber attack occur this past week, correct? Somebody yes. want to take that? <laughs> Go ahead. I was waiting for Joe. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. No, apparently, you know, it was apparently a cyber attack, although they kind of tried to take issue with our characterization of it as a cyber attack, even though the superintendent's office confirmed the, that to us, we asked it. Um, I, I, so I'm not sure exactly uh, what happened. They, that, I'm sorry, I, that, I'm wrong. We, they, char- they characterize it in a message to staff as a ransomware attack. Wow, I see. And then they said, oh, we don't know that it was a ransomware attack. You can't use that. But we we had like a text message from the assistant to the superintendent confirming that. I don't know. Um, And from it went downhill from there in terms of specific information that we'd gotten. We heard that there was a staff data breached. Right. You heard that, too, Joe. They said that. Um, But not student data. What, what did you do? We, do we know if there was? I mean, for it for it to be ransomware, there would have had to have been a request for for funds or Bitcoin or right. or, or yeah. something. We don't know if that that happened. We don't know that. I don't. You know, they've just been really uh, tight lipped about exactly what happened. At least that's what we found. Did, did you guys get anything different from that from them, Joe? Yeah, it doesn't. You know, it seems like information's uh, you know been pretty tight uh, coming from the district, you know, just like, you know, we're dealing with this, no big deal, you know, so everyone move, move along, <laughs> you know, nothing to see here. Yeah. Nothing you to see that? here, but, uh, it, you know, th- you know, these kind of things have been happening, uh, to districts, you know, all across uh, the country and there's been a bunch on Long Island in particular. And, you know, it's part of this kind of growing trend that has emerged, particularly from the pandemic, whereas as schools kind of relied more on technology and remote learning, you know, kind of been more susceptible to, you know, these kind of, things happening and easier, um, easier to access maybe and, and to get in with with all the different avenues students yeah you, know, you, you, can, right, you consider how many people are on these networks remotely on computers and you know you you, you, know, you hit one one wrong thing in an email that you know you, you shouldn't and you know next thing you know like a whole network could be um, compromised and um so yeah i mean you know you, you would expect the district to be a little more forthcoming with you know with some information on this and uh but well it's, I mean, it's an active not. it's an active law enforcement investigation probably at this point too which might not to defend you know that right. shining a light on it but but you know if, if they're trying to you know find the culprits or, or whatever chrissy were you trying to jump in there yeah i was gonna say um to joe's point about why you know what's the point about being you know tight-lipped about it month this happened in montauk in 2019 and the district, I mean, they're, they're, they're an open book. Like they will talk about whatever needs to be talked about openly. You know what I mean? So they're very good that way. They wound up um, paying $900, which, you know, for a small district, you know, like 
that could, you know, if it was Springs, it would make a huge deal. But like Montauk, nine hundred bucks in Bitcoin. Right. But it was only you're nine hundred. We're not talking about <laughs> yes. nine hundred thousand. We're talking about no. nine hundred dollars. Nine hundred bucks, which seemed to me very like Low. very specific. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> Somebody's got an emergency room to build a pay or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think at that point, I think that that the the cyber thieves are just happy to get anything. Right. You know, it's it's found money for them, and and uh, the district may have gotten out. But I, you know, I'm intrigued when you when you talked about Montauk was really open about it, I, and and Bill, your point about it being a, a law enforcement investigation makes sense. But at the same time, I don't know what the harm would be in letting people know. Exactly the nature of the, well, it's, what it's happened. Yeah. It's yeah, just wouldn't, it the, wouldn't it have the opposite effect? Like if you don't talk about it, like that looks even worse. That's almost. what you I know, would like, suggest. Yeah, but if you're, if you're, that cover it up, get a really bad PR out of it. You know what I mean? Like, just just devil's devil's advocate though. If you say it was a, a ransomware attack and we're going to pay a million dollars to you know to whatever, then that just encourages. Um, you know, these, these bad actors to, you know, to go to the next school district or, or municipality. I think it happened in one of the local villages a couple of years ago too. Didn't um, it happen in Sag Harbor or something like that? It might've, it might've been. Maybe 2018. It's happened. And, and I know that there've been some real high profile cases nationally where districts have, have ended up paying really, and, and school districts, but also municipalities yeah. have ended up paying really high numbers because there really is no other solution. If, if someone takes over your computer files and locks them down, uh, there isn't really a whole lot law enforcement can do to shake that loose. There was a it's, really high profile one in Rockville Center in 2019 too. Um, and they wound up paying a hundred thousand dollars, but it was covered by the district's insurance policy. Yeah. Which I thought. Does anybody know? Does anybody know about this? Is almost always the result of human error, right? It's phishing attempt. It's it's somebody. Most often, this happens by someone in the system clicking on a link they shouldn't have clicked on in, in an email. That that's how this happens, right? It's it's not it's not. Uh, it's not war games, the old movie from the eighties or nineties. Um, they're, they're, hacking they're, into your, yeah. yeah, they're, they're sending out uh, yeah. emails and, you know, 999 people know not to click on that link, but the one person who does can put a whole system. I think, I think you did that once Joe, right? I believe I did. Yes. <laughs> you, clicked on, you clicked on an email link and, and it, well, it was a virus. It wasn't, you know, this, it wasn't this Be, type of because thing. Because they're, they're getting better and better. Right. They are. At, at they figuring are. out how to send you things that plausibly look like things that could have come from somebody. Yeah. And to Joe um, Workmeister's point with, with everybody being able to log into the system now with, with COVID, you know, students included, students and teachers and um, and everybody, there's just a lot more people to target if that was if that was the case. I love that was, uh, like you know, thinking, thinking back <laughs> to uh, when when um, was it Twitter had that big hack, right, where they were uh, um, all like these top yeah. accounts were like tweeting things out and it was like total chaos. Uh, I think they said that got started by somebody like kind of pretending to be an IT person yeah. and, and remotely, you know, going into you know, sending an email or something to someone on the staff and they thought it was the IT person. And, and next thing you know, like the whole, the whole Twitter system is compromised. So that yeah, is, like, it, you know, it can be. 
with the with the attack or whatever happened in the district in Riverhead this week, I mean, their 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 whole email system was down. Nobody could email. Mm-hmm. Their internet was down. They their their Google based uh, applications for learning were okay, um, you know, and accessible. But um, you and know, that's Google, again, Google, Google is cloud based, and I imagine you know that's not anything on. They a were not. Server. Yeah, they were not on the on the local server. So. You know, I, I don't know. It was a significant attack. I feel like they, you know, it would have been better to put out more information. They make these yeah. robocalls to staff and different robocall to, you know, the this the um, the, the district families. Um, they put the kind of like a transcript of the robocall on their website, and that's it. They're locked down. Then it's like you know, any questions that you ask are evaded, and you get kind of like a spin statement from their PR firm. And um, and I, you know what, if it were just this incident that this, you know, pattern, but it's a pattern, that, you yeah. know, with with everything they, they don't want to even acknowledge happened. Um, Joe, is that like, something you've you've noticed, too, that uh, the school district being a little less transparent? Yeah, you know, it's and it's definitely um, it, it, a, f- a few years back, you know, they switched over to, uh, you know, they used to have kind of one person who sort of. Uh, was in charge of their media kind of relations on staff. Person on staff, and kind of, yeah. Yeah, and we, you know, everyone kind of knew who she was, and and that was you know pretty pretty helpful. And then they switched to one of you know this PR firm that most of these districts are using now, and you know that really just puts a real uh, barrier between you know us and the district, where you know everything has to be filtered through uh, you know the PR firm. And if you you know, but you know by by chance happened to actually pick up the phone and call somebody, you know, in the district office, it's like, you know, the end of the world. And it's hard to get an interview with anybody. It's, it has to be, you know, you send in a question and they'll you know, write back whatever they feel like writing back and you can't follow up. And it's, it's hard. It's, that's really interesting. Chrissy, I know you and, 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 and it's been like lot. that and now through a couple of superintendents too. Yeah. <laughs> Chrissy, you deal with the schools a lot, and I know we do as well. And, and and I've noticed that that the school districts, since they've begun employing PR firms to handle the district PR, uh, they tend to say everything has to go through the PR firms. It gets harder and harder to get actual content, co- you know, comment from district officials. In in some cases, are you seeing that too? Uh huh, hundred percent. Um, and also the timeliness factor too, like. I, I, you know, I don't want to say which district it was, but I wrote to the PR firm after I couldn't reach the superintendent directly. And then the PR person was like, why are you reaching out to the superintendent? You know, you have to go through us. (laughs) And quite frankly, like that's a relatively new thing in that particular district. They used to be so open with me. You know, and we had a good yeah, relationship. I don't, and I, didn't have to, I don't play that game. I, I don't I write to the superintendent. And if the superintendent chooses to boot it to the PR firm, I make note of that. I've got a list <laughs> because yeah. I, that's, it, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Just so bogus, you know, um, and I because they never answer questions directly. And the fact that you can't get an interview and, and forget about trying to get an interview with the elected officials hmm. that are supposedly, you know, in charge of the district. You know, we've got a seven member elected board. You cannot interview any of them. That's amazing. There's just something fundamentally wrong with that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I, yeah, I don't know, but that's just me. 
Now that really is problematic. It's it, yeah. I, it, I, and I think we've all seen it uh, across all the school districts. I think we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. And our panelists today, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, and Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group. Uh, Chrissy, uh, really interesting conversation taking place publicly about affordable housing over the last couple of weeks in the East Hampton School District and environs. Uh, tell us about what happened there. Uh, the school district in East Hampton had an affordable housing forum and the school board had a conversation about that um, recently and it got kind of interesting, right? Yeah, and so, you know, that forum generated, it was two weeks, November 30th. It generated some really interesting ideas from like zoning changes to finance options to you know, promises of partnership with elected officials and um, town departments. And then a week later, um, the school board has its regular meeting. And out of kind of nowhere, the subject of the subject came up that wasn't broached at that forum two weeks ago. And that was, hey, neighboring school district, we have a lot of the housing. It's it's you, you should have it, too. It's time to have your fair share. And that district was Wainscott. And on the record, responding to some, you know, pretty strong comments by the East Hampton School Board, the Wayne Scott School Board hit back because, the you know, they opposed an affordable housing development in their district in like 2014, 2015. And then that project got shelved um, after all that pressure. And then, you know, the Wayne Scott School this week hits back saying basically like, I'm shocked that another district would, you know, advocate something that's going to harm our district. So uh -huh. um, so let's and, let's explore this a little bit, Chrissy. The what's interesting is Wayne Scott is one of the smaller districts, right? I mean, their school facilities are very small compared to the, a lot of the districts out here. Yeah, they have a two room schoolhouse. Um, they say the capacity is 24 in K through three kindergarten through third grade. Um, they basically have one classroom for K and one and one classroom for two and three. Mm. And, you know, right now in the pandemic, their their enrollment escalated. It varies, obviously, you know what I mean? Because there's a degree of transience among people here because of housing. But um, in the pandemic, that rose to like the mid 30s. So they had room for 24. They made it work with like 33 or 34 kids. And now they're saying like any more affordable housing that brings more kids in that'll, you know, they sent out a flyer in 2019 saying is the end in sight for the Wayne Scott school. That was a communication from the district, not like from residents opposing it. The district took that stance and that was very alarmist. The, the idea being that affordable housing would bring in more students to the district and would throw the population over what they could handle. Yeah, that was the idea. And, you know, the one back in 2014, 15, that was proposed by Windmill Housing, which is the one that runs a lot of the senior citizen housing on the South Fork. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were no the, the, the project never got to that point of like, you know, it was going to be 49 apartments and, you know, 50 percent would be seniors or the other, you know, whatever, like working class families. Um, it just but, got but shot if, down. If you're the Wayne Scott School District and you have room for a couple of dozen kids, 
there isn't a lot of wiggle room there, right? I, right? I mean, any kind of significant affordable housing influx, this is one of the things that stops affordable housing from getting built is it means new taxes in school districts to, to deal with the influx of kids. And in, in Wayne Scott, there just isn't much flex room there because of how small it is. Yeah, they're going to it's coming their way no matter what, because, you know, what's the future of the East Hampton Town Airport? And what's the future of the pit, which is the sand pit that's being reclaimed and subdivided? There's a petition. To, there's a application to subdivide it for like different sales and uses by the home, by the property owner. So like it's not just coming from the town, like private interests, you know, developers, they, they don't like the school district won't have a say in that. Right. I, I think one of, one of the, I mean, to just the, 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 the bigger story here might be just the fact that the school district, East Hampton school district is, is having this discussion about affordable housing. And I think that's almost a first, I mean, not, I, I don't know what the school district can do. I mean, it's nice to have a plan that this is, you know, to, to forward to, to town government um, that this is what you guys should be doing about affordable housing, but it's not like they can change zoning or they could build their own affordable housing complexes, you know, in, in the yeah. school district. But it, it, it feels to me like a, it's born of a, a frustration that, that the, you know, that East Hampton town hasn't, I mean, East Hampton town has done a, a good job with affordable housing. I mean, let's be honest, they've done more than, than some other towns have done in, in, in bringing in, um, you know, affordable housing units, but we all know that that is just never enough there. And it's just this frustration by the school board that they can't retain teachers and administrators and, and all that. And so they're going to tackle it head on. You're seeing the same thing in, in Sag Harbor Village, which which, you know, they want to tackle affordable housing. And it's just this overall frustration. We've talked about it a million times that just not enough gets done quickly enough. The, actually, the. Um... Bill, there's actually the school district could build on its own property. Um, they have a property. I actually asked J.P. Foster, the school board president, hey, you know, a few years back, you had that proposed bus depot for your land that you own off of Cedar Street. And that got eventually transferred to, a, you know, the former scavenger waste site in East Hampton Town because so many people weighed in on it. And but they have that piece of property in a residential neighborhood yeah, bus barn probably wasn't the best idea, but they could build housing on that. JP acknowledged I'm, that if they I'm, floated a bond to their to their community, it's like what's palatable to the community. Like, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious what, what when you get you know state and, and local regulations involved. If they built if they built something on their property, could they restrict it to district employees? I, I don't yeah, know how that works. Accept, if they don't accept like that public fund. Oh, in so, terms of like oh, you know, okay. federal federal HUD money or right. state housing money, you know, there are probably some, you know, fairness re restrictions and guidelines that they have to follow. But like, you know, they would have more leeway. That was talked about at that forum. Well, that's but great. let's not lose let's not lose the, the, the point that, that you made, Chrissy, which is it's very unusual for one school board to call out a neighboring school board for not doing enough on this front. And that was really yeah. sort of startling uh, that, that the East Hampton school board basically said, 
Uh, Wayne Scott needs to really start thinking about changing. And, and it raises the question is, can you really on the, on the East end today is a two room schoolhouse and in Sagaponic, I know they have a similar situation there. Is that feasible in providing real education for a growing community? And this is a growing community. And it may just be that, that some of these small school districts like Wayne Scott uh, may have to rethink that. And it, it may require some capital investment. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I just, I would rather not <laughs> comment on that aspect Understood. of it, but because I actively cover this issue. It's the issue on the table, right? I mean, that, I mean, this is the, where the rubber hits the road with affordable housing. And Bill, we've had sessions, express sessions, events talking about this, but this is why affordable housing doesn't get done because there is an impact on schools and on, you know, sure. on infrastructure. And, and we're going to very soon have the option of putting in place a new half percent tax uh, next year. There's likely going to be votes in, in the five East End towns to do this. And it would create a fairly uh, robust stream of money to help fund affordable housing. I think in Southampton town, Jay Schneiderman said that could be $15 million a year towards affordable housing efforts. But none of it's going to happen if we can't figure this part out. Right. My, I was curious, you know, I, you know, I very focused on the South Fork, but on the North Fork and Riverhead, like, is there any discussion of this nature in the districts that you guys cover, Joe and Denise? Of affordable housing? Well, like and, and, pertaining to the schools. Through oh, that well, I, those, yeah, I mean, they, it almost goes hand in hand, really. Um, every time there is um, a housing proposal, um, you know, people raise that issue. The school district weighs in and raises that issue. Um, you know, even with um, these apartments where the developers and the planners say, well, there will be almost no impact on the schools because these are, you know, not family I don't want to say they're not family friendly apartments, but, you know, they're studios and one bedrooms and, you know, there are very few two bedrooms and no three bedrooms. So therefore, you know, they won't have an impact on the school or have a minimal impact on the school. Um, and people are very skeptical of that always. Um, I think there has been some impact on the schools from the uh, these apartment buildings that have gone in. But I feel like, I mean, you know, Riverhead has a lot of affordable housing. What, beyond these apartment buildings um, or in just terms of other rentals and um, some mobile home communities, um, you know, so uh, not that it's not a discussion and not that it's not a need still. It, I mean, I think that it is, but, um, you know, kind of like the horse already left the barn. What's the right expression, you know, yeah. on that? <laughs> um, so it's worth, it's worth pointing out that East Hampton uh, prompted this discussion by having the affordable housing forum to raise some of these issues. And I know Adam Fine, the uh, superintendent in East Hampton, has come out and said flatly that uh, if something isn't done, uh, it's a real crisis, that they're, they're having difficulty even filling positions uh, and coming all the way up to, to, to staffing levels that they need. And, and that's why the school district has sort of wandered into this minefield uh, so that's that's one of the reasons why I think it's happening. The conversations taking place in East Hampton. I, I guess it's no different than than. I mean, you're hearing rumblings about 
um, you know, local businesses that want to build their own um, housing for for employees and, you know, how different ways to get around, you know, town regulations about that and and all that. And I mean, it's just a, it's a larger scale, but it's the same thing. If we can't if we can't recruit people to work for us because they can't live here, then we have to try to look at providing them them housing. And maybe that's one of the solutions to, to the crisis. You know, that happened in Montauk. An example is when one, you know, large corporation that owned a hotel bought a smaller hotel motel um, to staff to house its staff. There you go. You know, like the smaller, you know, place probably was to a degree like, you know, month to month, but year round people, you know, who then lost their housing. You know, not that it was probably not supposed to be permanent in the first place. You know what I mean? But like, mm-hmm. yeah, know, a lot a of hotel the hotel is buying up other hotels to do right. that, you know? Well, Sag, Sag Harbor Cinema in, in Sag Harbor just recently bought an apartment building with, with the idea that as those, I, I think the idea they weren't going, uh, weren't going to kick any of the current tenants out. There were a couple of vacancies already, but as, as the current tenants move out, then, then employees would move into to apartments in, in that building. I and mean, it, it's the same thing. Yeah. There's no question the affordable housing shortage is taking a toll on the local economy and, and it's really touching every uh, sector of the economy on the East end. Uh, but as we said, there may be help coming on that front next year. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, you uh, just heard from Chrissy Sampson, who's uh, with the East Hampton Star. Also with us are Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Um, Denise, we should probably talk COVID, right? I mean, you know, it's not a week goes by where it's not a, the story. Um, numbers locally are continuing to creep up after the holiday, right? Yes, they are. Um, and pretty significantly, too. I mean, um, around New York State, especially upstate, um, but in Suffolk County, um, you know, we're seeing um, test percent positive rates of uh, 7% now. Um which we haven't really been there in a long time. We've been over over six for days now since since Thanksgiving, really. Um, the week after 6%. Thanksgiving. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. The week after Thanksgiving in East Hampton Town was eight point one five. So but that that dropped a little bit in the following week. There, there has been Denise some conversation that it may also be that there's more testing taking place, and that that may have to do with with the numbers being up a little bit. Is do you buy that? I mean, you know, I would say that's not really true. I mean, the test numbers countywide have been pretty much in the same place um, through the fall, really, since the uh, Delta surge, you know, was around. Um, but um, one thing that I can tell you, I'm looking at my spreadsheet, is that you know hospitalizations are not keeping pace with what they were last year. Even though, even if because we are new tests, new positives rather um, are about you know following the same trajectory. They're about right where they were last year this time, which is a little scary because last year was not good. I mean, we had you know a lot of sickness, hospitalizations, and fatalities um, last winter. Uh, I, wonder, but, I wonder if that's due to the to the vaccinations where you have people who are getting breakthrough infections, but not getting 
as sick because they've been vaccinated. And, and so, so, yeah. So, I mean, hospitalizations are a lot lower than they were last year, um, a, a, a little more than half, but like, but that, you know, by that much, uh, by that much of an order of magnitude, if that, if that makes any Chrissy, sense. So. Chrissy, you, you at the star and we at the press both wrote about this this week that uh, the numbers of hospitalized at Stony Brook Southampton hospital are a little up, but they're still not nearly where they were uh, at the worst point, point of the crisis. Yeah, this week they reported 11 patients, none in the ICU, uh, which is also a good, you know, good. good good indicator. Nobody on ventilators either, I believe, Nobody right? Nobody on ventilators, yeah. And uh, But that, you know, that's the highest in like, you know, about six weeks or so. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But, you know, Fred, Dr. Weinbaum, the chief medical officer there, his quote to me this week was, there's no need to panic. We have treatments, we have ample bed capacity, and you know we have other tools in our toolbox. To, it does you know, feel like we're entering a new phase of the pandemic now where uh, there are treatments and there is hope that if you're vaccinated, uh, this is not uh, you, you have the chance to, even if you get a breakthrough infection, um, that it's not going to be as serious. And, and the Omicron variant so far uh, is in Suffolk County, we know, and probably the numbers are higher uh, than, than we've heard because everything sort of lags on that front. But it's important. I, 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 read, I read this morning, I think it was three, three cases in Suffolk County and like 18 statewide. But Governor Hochul is, is saying now that it is community spread and not just people bringing it in from um, from traveling out of the country so that it, those numbers were are going to quickly go up I would I would imagine in the next that's week. totally totally to be expected yeah but yeah. it's Joe, but it's important to stress that the delta variant is still something like 99 percent of the cases in the United States and it's the more serious uh, it's it's at least so far uh, anecdotally suggesting to be more serious sorry Chrissy go ahead I was going to say, like, my eye, obviously, like I mentioned before, is on the South Fork, but, you know, the hospitals on the North Fork and West of, you know, in Riverhead and such, like, what are you guys seeing in terms of cases, case numbers or, you know, things like that? I think we yeah, reported, Bill. I, I, I haven't seen the specific numbers that, like, people have seen recently. actually is down, I believe. They're, they, they yeah, they're under 10, she told me the other day. Uh, yeah. Amy Lowe, the, the executive director uh so Which was, uh, was like almost, almost opposite of, of, I mean, when you compare it to Southampton Hospital, almost opposite during of, of the height of, of the pandemic where you, you know, you saw more more in Riverhead than you did in Southampton. And, and this week, it seemed to be kind of kind of reversed. It's just the vagaries of a pandemic. I think these numbers are going to go up and down at different points. And we check back in three weeks. It may be just the opposite, too. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's hard to say. It looks like we have a little bit of breaking news that will be coming today. I'm just seeing this now. I mean, I guess this won't be breaking news by the time people hear this tomorrow on Saturday. The but governor, right? The governor yeah. is going to require all indoor public places and less businesses or venues implement a vaccine requirement have to have masks. So mm-hmm. I guess, mask uh, mandate. Indoor, mm-hmm. So it looks like that's coming. Well, we're, we're, uh, we're, <laughs> it says the state will reassess that, reassess that on January 15th. 
we were we Good. were saying I'm it, glad to we, hear were, this. we were saying it before the show look new york city has a two percent positivity rate and they have that rate because they're requiring vaccinations um you know proof of vaccination and in, in in restaurants and other businesses and they have you know mask mandates and, and all that and um and and other measures and it just goes to show you that that stuff works right i mean that that's keeping their numbers down in in new york city um, not that we have to go to that same same extreme out here, um, probably, but but it's certainly um, it's certainly wise to um, to get vaccinated and to keep wearing your mask and and and, and, do, and all the those, other, do all those things we were doing last year. The other key bit of news this week that I think was really important for people to hear is that the Pfizer and Moderna booster shots have proven to be very effective against the Omicron variant. So uh, don't wait if you are eligible to get a booster shot. I know some people I've heard anecdotally saying that uh, they're going to wait until there's an Omicron booster. Don't do that. This booster shot that's available now is effective against the Omicron variant. And uh, that's potentially a game changer, too. So uh, the battle continues. We are out of time, uh, but a great great conversation this week um thank you to our guest denise civiletti of riverhead local uh joe workmeister from the times review media group and christine sampson from the east hampton star thank you guys we appreciate it happily to see you thank Thank you you to my co-host bill sutton as always bill i'll see you uh next week always a pleasure and i'm joe shaw thanks for joining us this week on behind the headlines uh we'll see you next week 